20, starting in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Pray with me. God, as we come to your word, as we hear it, may we also feel the weight of it. Lord, grant that I would preach it with faithfulness, with clarity with boldness and grant that it would be heard rightly as it is to be heard. Lord, that it would convict us where we need conviction and that it would comfort us where we need comfort. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May it be so for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the themes of our text is the theme of a battle, of war. And when I think of battles and wars, I think of the title that was given to World War I after it had ended. And after all the dust had settled in that war, after all the casualties had been counted, after all diplomatic arrangements had been made, it was determined that World War I was the war to end all wars. It was given this title because it was believed that the unprecedented destruction that had happened, all the devastation that had come from loss of life, loss of facilities and buildings and countries and everything, this would be enough to convince every nation to never do anything like this again, right? Surely the cost of human life, surely the economic ruin that every nation who was involved in it felt, surely all the global upheaval that this caused would leave such a strong impression on future generations that they would do whatever it took to pursue peace in order to prevent it from happening again. Not to mention that there was the establishment of the League of Nations. Surely such an institution could stop anything like this from ever happening again. And yet, The label, the war to end all wars, lasted only 20 years, two decades, because by 1939, the political tensions and the unresolved conflicts had reached such a boiling point that it then spilled over into World War II. So if World War I and World War II taught us anything, if the 20th century and the 21st century has taught us anything, it has taught us that human nature, being what it is, and this fallen, sin-cursed world being what it is, there's always going to be conflict and hostility and war among us unless the Lord intervenes in a decisive way to bring about a peace that only he can bring. Because human conflict can never resolve the human issue, the human problem. Because, in a sense, we are the problem. So G.K. Chesterton uh, was reading a uh, question that the editor sent out of a newspaper. 
And the question was, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, famous author, early 1900s, wrote in two words. Dear sir, I am. It's four words, but this whole essay was two words. Because he was saying that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And unless the Lord intervenes in a unique and definitive way, it's not going to solve the human problem. Which leads us to our passage this morning, the first section, verses 7 to 10, which I think can properly and only be labeled the war to end all wars. Because in Revelation 27 to 10, John describes how this theme of spiritual conflict and spiritual warfare, which he has shown us in Revelation that underlies all other conflict and the propagation of evil in this world, comes to a climactic resolution when the Lord intervenes in a decisive and definitive way by dealing with Satan and all who are in alliance with him. Or you could say that Revelation 27 to 10, to use warfare terminology, is where John provides us with all the intel we need on the war to end all wars. So intel being shorthand for intelligence information which is gathered to determine an adversary's capabilities, intentions, and activities. And so that's what John provides us with this morning. So the first piece of intel that John gives us is the timing of this war. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. So John tells us when it's going to take place. So when is it going to take place? Well, it's when the thousand years are ended. Well, when exactly are the thousand years going to end? I don't know, and neither do you. And this is a good reminder for us. And I should have used this, I should have given us this reminder last week. All attempts at end time date setting are a fool's errand at best and sinful at worst because the time is known only to the Lord. Christians are going to disagree about the order and nature of end time events. Guess what? Until the end times end. There is never, there's going to be the war to end all wars, but there's never going to be the end times chart to end all charts. Okay? But here's what we must agree on when it comes to the timing and ordering of the end times. We must agree on this. The Lord knows the time of these events. They are in his hands. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing will take him by surprise. And we must agree on this as well. The Lord's purposes will prevail in these events. He knows them. The times are in his hands. And his purposes will prevail in the events. Whatever the order, whatever the timing, the Lord will do whatever he pleases. We must agree on those. So whether you're pre or post or amillennial, or if you're ignorant millennial, you don't know what those terms mean, hopefully you're at least in agreement with Mike Bruce that you are a pan-millennialist. You believe it's all going to pan out in the end. And I'll be the first to admit, humbly admit, that when all the dust settles, when all the events unfold, when we, when we see the chart in heaven, I will humbly be the first one to say, I told you so, okay? <laughs> The second piece of intel that John gives us is the intention of our adversary. So look at verse 8 
and then the first half of verse 9 with me. So when he's released, he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So our adversary's intent in this war is to gather all his allies from across the globe in an all-out assault against the people of God. Satan's goal has always been to vent his hatred of God by destroying the people of God. So Revelation 12 introduced us to Satan in this imagery of a dragon, a devouring beast, who, because he could not stop the plan of redemption when Christ came and was crucified and risen for us, the next thing he's going to do is take all his anger and vent it out on God's people, the bride of Christ. Now, we'd all argue, I hope, certainly Satan, we would agree, is active and working now. It's evident from what we see in the world, from what we see in Scripture, from the persecution we see by our brothers and sisters across the globe. But I believe there exists at present, as I tried to argue last week, an invisible fence, as it were, around some of Satan's desires and activities, restraining him from doing what he would love to do most, which is collect all of his allies, concentrate his forces in an all-out assault against Christ's church. And this is why John uses to describe this army that's made up a reference to Ezekiel 38 and 39. So he says, from the four corners of the earth, he gathers his army, and then he uses the term Gog and Magog. Now, many people have speculated who that is. Some say it's Russia, some say it's China, and everyone has someone who they think it is. But what I understand it to be is, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Ezekiel, as a prophet, described a battle where nations would gather, they would come together in collective way to pursue the people of God, to destroy them. And so that prophetic imagery became a symbol and a reference for how Satan is going to use spiritual warfare, use his allies in a unique, collective, concentrated way to go after the church. I don't think it refers specifically to Russia, Putin, to China, to North Korea. I think what it refers to is all the nations collectively gathering in a unified way to seek to assault the church of God. And this has not yet happened, and it will one day. So the intel we have is that Satan has intentions to collect, to concentrate, and unify his efforts against the people of God. Third piece of intel in our passage is the threat level that our adversary poses. So our country has a national terrorism advisory system, which evaluates the current risk of a terrorist attack on national soil. So if you've ever seen it, if you're kind of a 9-11 kid, you remember hearing all the time that these different colors that were going on. And it goes from green, which is the lowest setting, it's the lowest risk, all the way to red, which is a severe risk. And I remember hearing, you know, in post, you know, 2001, it's, it's at orange. It's at, you know, this is, this is the highest it's been in our lifetime. Because the government sets this bar based on the credibility of intel that they receive regarding threats to our native soil. Well, what threat level does John give regarding the spiritual warfare advisory system? of our adversary. Well, I think he really gives it two assessments of the threat level based on two perspectives, two vantage points, as it were, that we see in this text. Now, from an earthly vantage point, from the vantage point of the people of God who are seeing the assault come towards them, the threat level is viewed by them as through the roof. It has never been higher. It's whatever is above red, dark red. The way John describes the battle scene is that the church is massively outnumbered. He describes the army that Satan gathers as 
as numerous as the sands on the seashore, which is an ironic allusion to how um, large Abraham's offspring were going to be. And then, not only is this a large army, but they're surrounded. So if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, what I, what I think about when I picture the scene is one of those final scenes in The Return of King in the Lord of the Rings saga where Aragorn and Gandalf gather what little forces they have left and they storm to the gates of Mordor. And as they knock on those gates, the army comes out and what happens is a massive army that they didn't even know was still there surrounds them. And you're left sitting there scraping the bottom of your popcorn bowl as the three and a half hour movie is almost over wondering how are they going to get out of this now? Or you could picture the scene and how the people of God are feeling in this moment as like the nation of Israel who had just fled the land of Egypt. And they think they have their freedom and yet here they run into a massive body of water that they cannot cross in front of them. And they turn around behind them and they see a massive army of Egyptian chariots behind them. And they think it's over. You brought us out here to kill us. So the threat is high and hope is low, but from a heavenly perspective. And remember John in writing Revelation is intending to give the earthly people of God a heavenly and eternal perspective on how things are going to go between Christ's first and second coming. And so he gives them a heavenly perspective on the war to end all wars. And from that heavenly perspective, he shows us that the threat level remains as it has always been. God's threat level advisory system has one setting and it's never changed or moved. And the one setting is not threatened, unthreatened. Because it has always been that way that the Lord does whatever he pleases. He is sovereign and he works his will among the inhabitants of the earth and he does his will as he pleases. And so look at the end of verse nine through verse 10, as John points out how God will deal with this threat. He will deal with it swiftly, severely, and eternally. So verse nine, second half there. As the army marches and surrounds them, fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What this battle scene is meant to remind us is that if the Lord is with us and if the Lord is for us, which he is in Christ forever, unbreakably, then who can be against us? Even when our adversary has assembled all of his forces in their greatest number at their greatest strength, the Lord does not flinch and he is not threatened for one moment. It's as Moses said to the trembling Israelite nation then and it is now, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation that the Lord is going to work for you today. So the encouragement for us as we move from this future scene back to our present day that we're to take away from this is that if our adversary cannot destroy the church at full strength, then whatever the church is dealing with at any point in history, at any moment in the present, whether it's persecution abroad, whether it's secularism at home, worldliness, spiritual apathy, cultural moral degradation, if the Lord can deal with our adversary at full strength, he can deal with everything else. The Lord is always unthreatened and the Lord will always see his church through any threat and will build his church in spite of it. So as Martin Luther said, Satan is mighty, but he is not almighty. No matter how crafty his scheme or how concentrated his efforts, he will not be able to disrupt the plans of God or ever destroy the people of God. Which is why when Paul writes that great letter to the Romans, this is how he signs off his letter. The God of peace 
will soon crush Satan under your feet. So it gives the believers this promise that soon you will see the enemy even lying under your own feet. Not because of your strength, but because the one who is for you means no one else can be against you. So it will be the war to end all wars. Well, as we move from this section to our last section in chapter 20, we move from the war to end all wars to another final scene, the judgment to end all injustice, the judgment to settle all accounts. So in verses 11 to 15, we shift from the imagery of a battlefield into that of a courtroom. And it's not just any courtroom. This is the cosmic courtroom of heaven, and this is the final court case of history, the court case to end all court cases. So in verse 11, John introduces us to the judge who presides over this courtroom proceeding. So look at verse 11 with me. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So as it started in Revelation, what we saw when we first peered into heaven was the throne and him who was seated on it. And as we come kind of to one of the bookends of Revelation, what we see again is the throne and him who is seated on it. And what John is trying to show is that central to all of human history is the one who sits on the throne. And what the throne signifies to us is that God has absolute and supreme authority as judge and ruler. This is the throne above every throne because all authority, kings, queens, parents, pastors, bosses, whatever authority you can think of, is subordinate to this authority and all their authority they have is only derived from this authority. And this is also the throne above every throne, not just because it's the highest in authority, but because every single human being is accountable to this throne. There's a saying that as a kid, I despised, but as an adult, I came to love this saying. I have come to love as a parent that whenever a child wants their way, you have the ability to use those soul-crushing, traumatizing words, no, to them. And then they look up at you, whether it's mom or dad or whatever, and they begin their defense plea with, but why? It's always a very sophisticated defense plea. And here is that, that phrase that I hated as a kid, but love as a parent. And it's, and it's philosophically deep and theologically precise. Because I said so, okay? You know the phrase. Hate it as a kid, love it as a parent. And I, I'm not being facetious. There is theological depth to this phrase, this, this kid-hated, parent-approved statement. Underlying the statement, because I said so, is the reality that God has established authorities of structure authorities in creation and structures of accountability. And it is always wise to honor them, and it is always foolish to ignore them. And so many kids have learned the hard way that Parents get to say, I said so. Parents exercise authority over children because God has established that parents are in charge of children. And children are accountable to parents because God has established that children are accountable to parents, not the other way around. And anytime we see in our world, we, 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 we sometimes look out and say, why is society degrading morally? Well, one of the reasons why is because people are trying to erase, diminish, or distort the structures of authority that God has set in place. We deny them to our peril. And so every parent, because of the position that God has placed them in, has the right to say, sin accepting, 
because I said so. And this is meant to be a faint expression and an image of the fact that every single human being, whether child or parent, is under a greater authority. And that is the authority of the one who made us. It's the authority of the creator who gives life and breath to everything and everyone. It's the authority of the creator who has the absolute right to impose moral obligations on us. And he has. Because we see this in his word, that he has given us laws that we're to keep. And we know this in our conscience. A thing we have inside us that either approves or disapproves of our actions and approves or disapproves of the actions of someone else against us. So even if we didn't have the word, we could look at our conscience and how it works and how it's run. And as C.S. Lewis brilliantly argues in Mere Christianity, even if we didn't have the word, we know in our own minds that we have standards that we set for ourselves that we don't keep and standards that we set for others that they don't keep and we don't like when they don't keep them. Because we're made in the image of a God who is a law giver. And so this moral obligation also comes with moral accountability. We are accountable to this one who has given us this law that we see demonstrated in structures in the world and we even know demonstrated in our own conscience. And because he's imposed this moral obligation on us and because we're accountable to him, we are gonna have to answer to him for how we have honored the moral obligation that he's imposed on us, which is what the Bible often refers to and what we're seeing here as the day of judgment. Now, this is not about Terminator. This is about the Bible. This is about revelation. This is about us one day having to own up to the fact that we are made in the image of God, that he has given us his law that we are to keep, and we're going to have to answer for it. We can suppress this reality. We can try to ignore this reality. We can try to pretend that it doesn't exist. But in the end, no one can escape God's authority and no one can escape accountability. We will still have to face the reality that God is judge of all the earth and he will do what is right. He will settle all accounts. And it's interesting that when you hear people protest, and and I'm not trying to get political with this, but you often hear them protest this kind of liturgical cry. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. Everyone wants justice. The odd thing is they want it for other people, not for themselves. And yet we know that we don't even keep our own standards, let alone the ones we set for other people. And and R.C. Sproul had had this famous line. He said, you know why you feel moral guilt? Because you're guilty. (laughs) It's our conscience in in, in a proper way uh, uh, that God gave us to accuse us, to say, I I need to find a recourse for my guilt. I need someone to absolve it. I need someone who can wash it away. Well, in verses 12 and 13, John describes who who will be summoned to appear before this judge. So look at verse 12 and 13 with me. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. So John uses three different phrases to describe three different groups of who is summoned to appear before this judge. Now, I take these various phrases to be collectively saying that everyone without exception will have to stand before this judgment seat. No one will be considered a flight risk because guess what? 
You cannot flee from the one who sees all things and knows all things, who is everywhere present. So you see in verse 11, when it describes the one who's on the throne, it says, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And I take that phrase to mean in part that all hiding places, all vision obscuring realities will dissipate before the one who is the judge of all the earth when that courtroom is in session. There will be no place to hide because the judge sees, he knows, even the secret thoughts and intentions of the human heart. It's funny how in, in culture we have this phrase where when, when someone is feeling like they're, they're being judged, they'll say, you can't judge me, only God is my judge. Is that really a better alternative in a sense? It's not. No one will be a flight risk and no one will be able to leverage their status or power to get them off the hook for this. Notice it says, and I saw the dead, great and small. It's kind of this, this holistic, everyone's there. It doesn't matter their status, power, privilege, whatever. They're there because the Lord is a just judge. He's not swayed or impressed or bribed by the things we could be swayed and impressed and bribed by. So scripture testifies everywhere to this final cosmic courtroom. So for example, in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, it says this, God will bring every deed into judgment, no account unsettled, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Even Jesus on multiple cases spoke of this. So he said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they spoke. And then Paul, when Paul was preaching, he made this one of the central points in his evangelism. So on Mars Hill, he's speaking to the Athenians and he says this, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection of Christ is part of the proof that God is going to have a day in which he is going to judge the world. The testimony of scripture is clear. Our ultimate and final accountability to God is certain and unavoidable. Well, next, John shows us the evidence that will be used in the courtroom to reach a verdict. So verses 12 and 13, as I just read, mention two books that will be used in this courtroom proceeding. There's the books, which are open, the books plural, which people will be judged by according to what they've done. So it's been called the book of our deeds, the book of recorded deeds. But then there's another book, the book of life. Well, let's focus on the book of deeds for a moment. In the book of deeds, we will be made thoroughly aware of God's perfect penetrating knowledge of every single human being, every action and every single motive underlying every action will be recorded. Every word we spoke and the heart motive behind why we spoke those words, right? Have you ever had that where you, you said something and you knew you shouldn't have said it, you actually wanted to say it, but then you said to the person, I didn't mean to say that. This book will say, yeah, you actually meant to say that. Every internally harbored feeling that no one else saw of bitterness and resentment and anger and coveting and jealousy will be exposed. And all that people thought was done in secret or gotten away with or forgotten will be brought to light. All faking, hiding, all hypocrisy, all blame shifting and excuse making will be uncovered. The effect of this opening of books as regards 
the lost, those who reject Christ, will be to undeniably establish their guilt, to seal their eternal fate, and to prove that God is perfectly just and righteous in his judgment. In other words, every mouth will be stopped and will be silent. Every objection will be overruled and no one will be able to level against God that statement, that's not fair. The evidence and the proceedings will be such that as Octavius Winslow said, throughout eternity, the lost soul will be testifying to this truth. God is holy. I was a sinner. I rejected his salvation. I lived in my sins. I loved my sins. I died in my sins. And now I am lost all eternity. And God is righteous in my condemnation. That's what this courtroom proceeding will prove. Now the thought of that is meant to feel heavy. And it's meant to weigh on our hearts with the utmost gravity because on that day, what is going to become clear to us is that one thing matters and one thing matters only. And it's not what we think matters often. It will not matter how many people knew your name. It will not matter how many followers you had on social media. It will not matter what your friends thought of you or what people you tried to impress thought of you. It will not matter how successful you were in your career, how large your financial portfolio was. It will not matter. What will matter is one thing and one thing only. Is your name written in the book of life? The other book. That's what will matter. This is why John says what he says in verse 15. Look there with me. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I want to clarify something about this scene that often we get mixed up. The the final judgment scene and the opening of the book of deeds is not a weighing in the scales of your good works and your bad works as you sit there twiddling your thumbs, hoping against hope that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. No, on the contrary. It will be a day in which it will be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that if the Lord were to keep a record of our sins, no one could stand in his presence for every single person, including even you, which is why we need to know about the other book. In Revelation 13, 8, this book of life is mentioned and it's given its fullest name, the book of life of the lamb who was slain. And the reason it's given that name is because the only way to stand in God's presence is to know the lamb who stood in your place. That's the only way to stand in the presence of the one who judges all, who sees all. If we're going to stand in God's presence, we have to know and trust and treasure above everything the lamb who stood in our place. Because to simplify things, there are really two options when it comes to our, our record of deeds and our sins. Either we acknowledge before this day that we have a record of debt that we cannot pay and we look to Christ who willingly with open arms says, I will pay that debt for you. I will take it to Calvary and I will cancel it in full. Or we ignore that and reject that and suppress that. And then on that day when it's too late, God takes our record of debt and says, you have to pay it. This is now yours to pay. As sobering and heavy as these thoughts are, there is comfort for the believer. This day, which we call a day of judgment, for the believer is a misnomer. It's not going to be a day of judgment for the unbeliever. It is going to be a day of overwhelming comfort 
and gratitude. If you are in Christ, even though all your sins have been paid and all condemnation has been removed because you're in Christ Jesus, you will still be summoned in this courtroom to appear at this day. Paul says very clearly in Romans 14.10, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now that seems odd to, to many believers. Why, why would we have to be there? Well, it's not because we're there to see if we if we passed or if we made the judgment. Why are we there? So that when we begin eternity with the Lord, we begin it by having a deeper, fuller, richer gratitude and understanding of how amazing grace was in our case. And here's what I mean by that. On that day, we will see the extensiveness of the record of our sin like we've never seen it before. God is gracious to you right now to not reveal the full extent of all your sin. If it was all revealed to you, you would be overwhelmed with despair. You think Bunyan, Christian, fell into the slough of despond? You will fall deeper into it if you see it all right now. But on that day, the extensiveness of the record of our sin will be seen. We don't even know the depths and layers to which we deceive and lie and hide and are hypocritical. But when we see the record and the extensiveness of our sin, next to each accounting, it is going to read, as it were, in parentheses, see the Lamb's book of life. See the Lamb's book of life. See the Lamb's book of life. Why? Because then that book will be opened. And as humbled as we are in that moment, we will be lifted up to the highest heights of gratitude that anyone has ever been lifted up to because we will then hear personally and publicly declared for all, including ourselves to hear, from the one whose opinion matters, our name read from the Lamb's book of life. I, I don't know if you get the same joy that my kids do when they see their name on something, but there's, there's this childlike joy that I think sometimes we lose as adults, but if a letter comes in the mail that has my kid's name, it doesn't matter if it's like an advertisement for National Geographic, they're the most excited person in the world because their name was on something. Or if you've ever had this experience where a kid is listening to a story or, or hearing a show and then some character is their name and they're like, oh, that's me, that's me. It happens to my Lucy. All the, I, apparently Lucy's used in every book there ever is written. And she's eyes light up because her name's in there. Or I remember as a kid, my, my first grade teacher gave me a book called, it's, it's called I Have to Go to the Bathroom. Um, there's a long story behind it. But ironically, the kid's name was Andrew in the story. I thought, it was a cool, I thought it was actually written about me. And I was so excited because there was a book with my name written on it. Now take that childlike joy and quantify it as, I don't know what numbers are big, but quantify it by a trillion or more. And you begin to sense a little bit of what it will be like to hear your name read from the Lamb's Book of Life. And under that name, it will say, bought with the precious blood of Christ and covered in the righteousness of Christ. And so what we will have in that moment is the fullness of assurance that you have always longed for but never seemed to fully grasp. We have have assurance in this world, but it, it ebbs and flows like the tide. And yet in that moment, you will enter into the fullness of assurance knowing that you are known by God. It won't be a day of judgment for the believer because that day already came over 2,000 years ago when Christ took our record of debt to the cross and he was judged in our place. It will be a day when we first dive into the depths of comfort and gratitude and begin swimming in the ocean of God's love and grace and we find out for eternity that it is an ocean without bottom or shore. So rejoice dear believer, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray.